Welcome to the Halliday Wine Companion Podcast. This is our space to chat about wine without all the fluff, from how to taste and describe it to how to pair it to that dinner party you're hosting next weekend. We'll be chatting to industry professionals from across the country, tackling all things wine from a palatable perspective. I'm Tom Carr, your host, and I'm part of the team here at Halliday, and this is By the Glass. So, welcome back everyone. This uh, is one episode that I've been most looking forward to recording and it's a little left of centre for us. Uh, Today, we're actually going to be learning about grape-based spirits. Now, I know that's not traditionally wine, but in fact, in front of me right now, I do have a glass of Pinot Noir gin and we'll get to that in just a second. Today, I am joined by distiller Holly Clintworth, and Holly is from Bass and Flinders on Victoria's rather lovely Mornington Peninsula, Uh, and Holly is going to be chatting with us about all things spirits and wine-based spirits. Holly, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Holly, now we've got a lovely little uh, Pinot Noir gin in front of us. Can you talk to me about that? Yes, Absolutely. So it is a grape-based gin that has then also been infused with Mornington Peninsula sourced Turong Plains Pinot Noir. So it's got a beautiful ruby red colour and some real characteristics reflecting the Pinot Noir grape variety. Yeah, beautiful. And um, let's just start with uh, distillation uh, and the life of a distiller. Can you tell me how did you end up here? Yes, well, I have been distilling at Bass and Flinders for uh, just about five years now. It's it's actually my family's distillery. So uh, in 2016, I stepped in to take over the business from my father uh, and he trained me and um, the rest is history. Yeah, right. And so, okay, today obviously we're going to learn about spirits, right? And uh how are, like, you know, top line, talk to me, how are most spirits made? Well, most spirits start with a, a, a material such as grain or grape. Uh, that material is then fermented. Uh, the alcohol is created and then extracted through distillation. And then, you know, you, you can create anything from, from rum to, to whiskey to gin, depending on your production methods and, and the base that you're working with. Because we were just, and so to give people a bit of context, off um off, I was going to say off camera, but we're not, we're not um, just off air is what I should say. Holly and I were just chatting about uh, neutral-based spirits uh, and and non-neutral-based spirits. Um, Holly, for people at home, what does that what does that mean? Yeah, so traditionally, when you talk about a neutral-based spirit, often that is used to produce gin um, and also vodka. A non-neutral base spirit is is what you would produce on a pot still. It's got much more flavour and character to it uh, that is derived from its base and, and that is used to produce things like brandy, rum and whiskey. Yeah, right. And, and okay, and so why so so you so at Bass and Flinders, you guys use a non-neutral um, grape-based 
um, spirit. Yes. What are the benefits of using a a, a non-neutral great based spirit? I'm trying yeah. to do <laughs> a mouthful. Um, well, for us, being established and being inspired to produce fine brandies, we, we use the, the non-neutral base spirit ordinarily uh, destined for brandy. We've carried that across into gin. And we, we do that because a non-neutral base spirit has a lot more flavour, texture, viscosity and interesting flavours and aromas that we want to carry over into the gin and actually use as almost like a botanical unto itself. Yeah, right. So because for people at home that um, a lot of uh, distillers, you know, not all, but um, a lot of distillers just buy in more of a neutral-based uh, spirit and then they flavour it, you guys actually go, we're going to buy a non-neutral, sorry, not buy, you make a non-neutral-based spirit and you go and we're actually going to celebrate the flavour of the grapes before we even put it through a, a botanical distillation. Exactly, yeah. Um, and so, okay, so let's talk about that. Like how do you, um, as far as, so obviously you use grapes from the Mornington Peninsula, um, what sort of relationships do you have with your growers? Yeah, so um, we, we we use a few different growers, some on the peninsula, some northern Victoria, all Victorian sourced, and we work really closely with our, our winemakers and grape growers. We, we very much specify the sugar levels, uh, acidity, pH, all of the factors that will then influence the end product of the spirit. Um, we have a lot of control from, from start through to finish you know it's a real kind of vine to bottle process that we that we work with yeah it's 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 interesting because we were and again this is a conversation we had before but we were talking it's not it's not uncommon in the wine industry to use grapes from a single vineyard and then even in making um whiskey for whiskey distillers they'll uh, use single malt uh but it's quite a rare practice to when it comes to distilling spirits such as gin so to actually have a a single vineyard gin is quite a fascinating notion it's very very rare i uh, i don't know of too many other distilleries that do it and that's purely because of the time and effort and cost you know it's 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 very very arduous labor intensive process but for us you know we, we feel that that's that's the most important part of what we do. It's 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 the heart and soul, celebrating the grape, celebrating the vineyard from which that grape was sourced, and carrying that right through to the finished product. Yeah, and we're and we're going to talk about that in a moment because I, I I think this is so interesting. So even when you as a consumer head down to uh you know a a, a bottle o, and you see two different spirits or two different gins, let's talk gin on the shelf, and one is you know double the price. Um, what you may not be taking into account is that one such as yours, you know, have made their spirit from scratch using grapes, wine grapes, and then the other may have just bought in a neutral-based spirit and flavoured it. That's absolutely right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that very much impacts the, the price point. Also, you know, broadly speaking, in the industry, there's there's the imported gins versus the local gins and, um, you know, the imported produced gins have the luxury of having huge scale as well so often when you're looking at the shelves you're seeing craft gins that are made in really small batches and 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 that also impacts the price but for us um, impacting the price too is that vine to bottle process that we use 
Yeah, right. And it's it, it was actually interesting because, um, yeah, just before we came on air, we tried um, uh, the Oda V, which is one of your um, – it, it's kind of your – how would you describe it? It's our, It's basically our base spirit in a bottle. Yeah. Yeah. And we tried it and – Holly was saying to me, you know, you you'll actually feel the texture and you'll you'll detect the grapes in that bottle. Yeah, that's it. You know, you you you're celebrating it. You're not stripping out all the flavor and aroma of the grape, which is what a neutral um, grape-based spirit would do. You you're almost ending up with a blank canvas if you're working with a neutral grape spirit. But because ours is non-neutral, there's a lot more flavor and character and aroma in there, and 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 we work with that and we harness that. Yeah, amazing. And so, Hol, look. You guys deal with a myriad of, well, you know, quite a few spirits, right? You you make brandy, which is m- more of your like your your anchor to your business or your your signature, I should say. Um, your uh, eau de vie, which we just touched on, liqueurs, but gin is a bit of a flagship pillar for you guys. Um, so I want to focus on gin because gin is is a pretty hot product these days. It is. It's very <laughs> hot right now. And so I wanted to ask, like, um, can you can you give us a little bit of a history around gin, like the story of gin? Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, it's a very, very checkered history, actually, very, very fascinating story. But in a nutshell, you know, um, Debatable, but some some say that gin originated in in Holland um, with, uh, via a Dutch doctor who was actually creating a, a medicinal tincture using alcohol and juniper and botanicals, um, and this medicine became really really popular in Holland. So much so that uh, during the Thirty Year War, uh, English troops and Dutch troops fighting. Um, they would have swigs of this, Of it was called Yeneva at the time, not gin. They would have swigs on the battlefield and this is where that concept of Dutch courage came from. Yeah, right. I've always wondered where that came from. Yeah, just a little a little swig and then, uh, <laughs> and then you'll be right. <laughs> You're all good, mate. Pick yourself back up. That's it. That's it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it, it became a really, really popular drink. It, it carried over to, to London um, because as history would have it, you know, William of Orange, Dutch born and bred, took the English throne and uh, he took over to England with him his love of your neighbour. The English cottoned on to this beautiful juniper forward spirit and, and tried the hand at making it themselves and they came up with gin. And uh, this is where this this huge gin craze started around the 18th century. And it it was it was very, very popular because gin was cheaper to produce than wine or beer. And so it gave the the poorer folk access to alcohol for the first time. And so um, the these these groups of groups of men and women were just getting drunk on the streets because it was so accessible <laughs> and rampant alcoholism through the streets oh of London. Um, and this is, you know, this is that real height of the gin craze and things like mother's ruin and 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 that's the story about how um, mothers would actually feed their babies little little nips of gin to shut up their babies. Oh, and <laughs> oh my God. Oh my Crazy God. stories. <laughs> um, people went out of their minds to get their hands on some gin and, you know, luckily today it's not quite that, not quite like that anymore. We're, um, bit more, bit more conservative, I suppose. But um, yeah, you know that was that was the gin craze in 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 London, and um, you know the. 
slowly, slowly, the government cottoned on and implemented some taxes and changes that meant that gin became much more of a respectable drink over time. And um, leading into today, where we've got, you know, a whole host of amazing Australian gins out there, amazing native botanicals um, being harnessed by local distillers. It's really, really exciting. And... uh yeah, I, look, that story is an absolute cracker. And uh, and actually, truth be known, I um, a few years ago did – Holly conducts these um, – and this isn't a plug, this is actually just out of pure interest. Holly runs these gin masterclasses where, um, where she talks about the history and actually you can make your own gin by adding your own botanicals, which I think is like – Pretty unique. Have you still got your gin? Do you know what I still do? Oh, yeah, yes. I haven't finished it yet. Yeah, I haven't. Oh, dear. Can it go off? Actually, that's a question. Can, no. Can- it, it, um, no. If, if you drink most of your bottle and you leave a tiny bit at the bottom, you know, it might lose a bit of its um, freshness, I suppose, but it, it, it definitely doesn't go off. It's a very stable product. And and, and, and actually, that's look, we're going to get into this, but with any spirit, does it have – like what is the shelf life like for an unopened – spirit or gin oh it's 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 very stable yeah okay. very stable yeah okay does it get better with um age like wine no once once it's kind of you know when white spirits tend to just you know as is um even even brandies as well they don't tend to change spirits don't tend to change in the bottle because um it you know it's a higher alcohol so it's more stable than a wine which is a lower alcohol and it wine can oxidize in a way that spirits can't so much yeah that's so interesting um, so this is exactly why this was one of the episodes I was most looking forward to. Uh, so let's talk about, okay, so we've, we've touched on, uh, the history of gin. Uh, now, you know, I want to touch on this, um, briefly before we really kick into it, but the, so the difference between say what you guys do and what, uh, what other distillers do is that you actually make a base spirit um, can you talk to me around how you make gin? Yes. So um, for us at Bass and Flinders, there's there's two parts to making our gin. And the first part is making that grape based spirit. And then the second part is infusing that grape based spirit with gin botanicals. So before we even get to the making of the gin part, we will um, buy in the wine to our specifications. We will do a double distillation on a alembic pot still. And, and that means that basically on the first distillation, we're passing wine through our still and that purpose of that distillation is to extract the alcohol from that wine, um, extract the alcohol and leftover is, you know, the, the the water, the pigments, the sugars. So we're extracting, say, a 12% alcoholic Chardonnay. We're extracting that 12% and separating that from everything else that makes up that wine. That's the first distillation. And then the second distillation's purpose is to actually purify the output from that first distillation, um, refine that spirit, and where we want to actually separate the drinkable alcohols. So that 12% alcohol in that wine is actually made up of a whole bunch of different alcohols, including, you know, methanol, which is obviously poisonous, ethanol, um, emyl alcohols, uh, fusel oils, all, all sorts of different things. On that second distillation, we want to extract the ethanol and get rid of all those other unwanted alcohols. So the so for people at home that don't know, ethanol is the 
is, is the drinkable stuff. Is the, is the good is stuff. Is the spirit base. <laughs> <laughs> is the spirit base. That's right. That's right. So after we've done two distillations, we've basically turned wine into spirit. And um, that spirit is ethanol or what we call eau de vie, which is um, French for water of life uh, or i.e. a grape-based spirit. So after that second distillation, we've got our grape-based spirit. And then to turn that spirit into gin, what we do is we, we select all the botanicals that we want to make up that gin. And the most important botanical, of course, is juniper. Legally, you must be using juniper for for uh, to be able to call it a gin if you know if you accidentally put all the botanicals in there but forgot the juniper you'd effectively be um you know making more of a flavored vodka rather than a gin really yeah so, so th- that would be the differ d- the differentiation between a vodka and a gin yeah well a vodka is a neutral spirit um and you can flavor vodka but gin is um something a, a spirit that's been flavored with juniper and other botanicals yeah right and, and, and so how much uh, – did hold on. Did we touch on this before, now like lost in interest? Oh, my God, everything you've – it's fascinating. Did we touch on what impact the grapes have on the base spirit? Have we touched on that? No. no. So let's, the, touch, let's, touch on, <laughs> let's touch on that. <laughs> so um, uh, the impact of the – okay, so the impact of the, the grape spirit. So – um, because we're making a non-neutral base spirit, um, we're retaining a lot of flavour and, and character of the original grape and we're, we're wanting to keep that flavour and we're wanting to then use that as, as an extra botanical. So when we get to that process of turning our grape base spirit or eau de vie into gin, we've already got some beautiful texture and flavour and a hint of sweetness from that grape character. Um, and then we're adding extra botanicals in there. And for us, we actually work with Shiraz, Shiraz wine for our, our gin base. And that's because, you know, Shiraz has some beautiful f- uh, fruits and um, spices and we we work with that. We work with that and we add that as a layer um, in our gins. And uh, then... How do you... So, sorry, Hol, how do you come... So... Why Shiraz over Chardonnay or Merlot or Gamay? Like why, why that particular grape variety? Yeah, so we we work with Shiraz for our gins and we work with Chardonnay for our brandies. And I and I guess they're both quite quintessentially Australian grape varieties, uh, firstly. But Shiraz, because it's really nice and bold. And when you're adding a whole lot of different gin botanicals on top of that, you want some of, well, we want some of that grape character and boldness to shine through along with the botanicals. Well, we don't want to hide that base spirit. We, we work with that base spirit as opposed to a neutral grape spirit where it's a blank canvas um, and you you don't really celebrate that base spirit at all you don't highlight it because it's got no flavor no aroma so it then becomes just about the botanicals for us it's about the base plus the botanicals yeah right and so okay so we've so okay so you you've you've made your um grape based spirit you've then uh and you've distilled that twice as you said and then you um distill it through your botan- your chosen botanicals to flavor your gin um how do you decide on what botanicals to use and, and how important uh is it like where you source your botanicals from yeah so um Deciding on the botanicals, you know, for me, uh, when I'm coming up with a new gin, I, I start with a concept in my head. So um, another another gin that 
we produced recently called Maritime Gin. That was all about celebrating the Mornington Peninsula flavours of, of the ocean and the bush and the vineyard. And so I, I, I chose botanicals to trial and play around with that represented that, um, you know, locally foraged samphire and kelp and saltbush and and they're all sourced locally because wanting to make a gin reflecting the Mornington Peninsula we source the botanicals locally to do that um and then when it comes to kind of creating that gin I I sit there and I I I, just what you did in your masterclass you sit there with lots of different distillates firstly you you trial and trial and error add things together see if it see if it tastes good keep keep going keep blending until you land on something that that works and that's got a full flavor profile front mid back palette um, it's got good texture and some of the botanicals that you choose you don't just choose for their flavor and your uh, aroma you're also choosing them for um, weight on the palate for instance cassia adds a real smoothness um, mm. and also some spice and and so there's there's a, a lot of different reasons to choose certain botanicals, and then when it comes to where they're sourced from, in in the case of maritime gin, really important to source some of those from locally from the peninsula, uh, and then you know in the case of our angry ant gin, we we wanted to celebrate a, a very specific property in Western Australia, so all of the botanicals, the native botanicals, we've sourced from this property called Woolleen Station. Yeah, right. So uh, okay, let's. Now that we sort of have an idea of how to make gin, uh, let's talk about how we drink it. <laughs> love it, yes. So that would we've both got a lovely gin in front of us, uh, this Pinot Noir gin. Um, but okay, my first question is: How should one drink gin? Well, there are many different ways of drinking gin, um, <laughs> and. We, we like to reference our gins as sipping gins because they're so smooth from that great base spirit that you can actually just sip them neat if you want to. And in that, in that case, you just sip them neat at room temperature. Um, you, you can definitely add ice though because I think, you know, historically people think of gin as quite a refreshing drink, the, the gin and the tonic and the ice. So equally adding a bit of ice is completely fine when it comes to gin because gin's got a lot of punchy flavour, especially when it's neat. Um, and then, you know, if you wanted to add a tonic, there's a whole host of different tonics out there. Some some of your classic Indian tonics that don't have any extra flavour. So, hold on, on that tonic, where did that, the whole notion of a, of adding tonic to gin come from? Well, that's, that's a bit of an interesting story too, but uh, historically tonic came about to uh to actually it, it was actually first created as a medicine for in the times of British East India when the, the British were over in India and there was um a huge outbreak of malaria and they needed to protect the British against malaria and the active ingredient in tonic is actually quinine and quinine is sourced from the bark of a chinchona tree and it is known to protect against malaria so they created this tonic medicine tonic with the quinine (laughs) added a bit of sugar to make it taste nice and the, the the Brits being who they were and loving their gin thought, hey, let's let's make this an, uh, a gin and tonic, add, add some alcohol to it, make it taste even better. And the thing about tonic is quinine is quite bitter and so is juniper and those two just actually marry up really beautifully in a drink. Yeah, right. So, um, okay, so let's talk about garnishes, right? Because I, you know, I've 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 seen everything from orange peel to rosemary um, to obviously lemon and lime. 
What should we be cucumber? What should we be garnishing our gin with? Yeah, so I I usually recommend to people start by looking on the back of your bottle, have a look at some of the botanicals that are listed in there. And um, when we say botanicals, you know, botanicals are flowers, herbs, spices. In in the case of our angrian, it can also be other things like ant pheromones, but um, botanicals, have a look at what botanicals are. Ant pheromones, we're coming back to that, by the way. She just slipped that in there as if it's no big deal. (laughs) Sorry, yeah, go on, yeah. Have a look at uh, the botanicals and then choose one that you like and that you want to highlight. For instance, um, our Gin 10 there has some orange peel as one of the botanicals, one of the key botanicals. So you would want to match your garnish with with that botanical and highlight that botanical and add a slice of orange. So you can start by matching your garnish to one of the botanicals on the back label yeah. and then you can start to get as creative as you want. You know, you could you could you could try something completely opposite to the actual botanical in the gin and then it you can, you know, it's opportunities are endless really. So, so there's no hard and fast rule is what you're saying. No, but also, you know, because juniper itself is very dry and citrusy, I think um, classically you would you would often choose to add either lime or lemon because th- those citruses really go well with juniper anyway, but yeah, there's no hard and fast rule at all. Yeah, cuz I cuz and I think that a lot of people at home feel like I don't know, almost this pressure that am I pairing it with the right garnish and, oh, if I'm drinking Hendrix, I need to have a cucumber and if I'm and if I'm drinking, you know, um, I don't know, a Bombay, I should be maybe having it with, with a lime or lemon. Like it, it, people feel this like expectation that there's a hard and fast rule around certain gins and certain garnishes. What do you say to that? I think it's all about having fun and exploring and playing around. And if you think something doesn't quite work, try something else. You know, it it really doesn't matter. It just comes down to to what you like, what your preferences are, and what you think tastes good. And so, what would be one a left field garnish that you've that you've used in one of your gins? A left field garnish. Um, we we have an Orient gin that has mandarin as one of the um, botanicals, and we actually add a um, cinnamon stick because it yeah. highlights some of the spices in the gin. So a gin and tonic with a cinnamon stick. But um, yeah, I mean you can try anything that's edible, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> that's cute though. I um and so glassware. Yes. How am I drinking my gin? What sort of glass am I drinking it out of? Well, there's, I mean, as you probably know, there's a whole lot of different glasses out there. I think classically, you know, when, when it comes to a G&T, a classic glass would be a highball, the, the tall skinny glasses. That's what a G&T is usually served out of. And then, you know, you've got your... Um, your old-fashioned glass, which is a shorter glass, and that's where you'd put kind of your, your your strong, short cocktail drinks like a Negroni. Obviously, there's the martini glass, and that's for your martinis. Um, but again, I, I think, you know, when you're at home, I don't think I don't think you have to worry too much about that. You know, <laughs> you just want to get your G&T. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so as far as, okay, so the next thing I want to talk to you about is a big focus in the wine world is pairing it to food. Okay, so and obviously with this Pinot Noir gin that, you know, you've – okay, look, let's just touch on that briefly. Your Pinot Noir gin, what is – 
why should I, as a Pinot Noir drinker, why should I gravitate towards a Pinot Noir gin? Good question. Well, um, when, when we made this gin, we, we really made it for those who love a good glass of Pinot Noir, but don't necessarily want to commit to opening and drinking a whole bottle. Obviously, after a few days, three or four days, you might not want to drink that Pinot Noir anymore. But um, this one's very stable. You can have you can have a, a G&T and then leave it and go back to it in a few weeks time. And it's just as fresh. So it's, you know, it's a really great alternative if you just want to have one or two drinks rather than, you know, have to have to get through the whole bottle with your friend. Yeah, because I was just when I was just tasting it then, what Okay, that is a question. How do I drink gin? Like, how do I how do I appreciate gin or, or gin like this that does have um, botanicals that that are aligned with um, with a typical Pinot Noir wine? Yeah. So this this particular gin, the way we've made it, it's it's got a natural sweetness because we've actually fortified the um, the grape juice with with juniper spirit and with the gin. It's got this beautiful sweetness to it. So it's really nice to to start off by tasting that one neat, rolling it around a little bit in your palate, um, getting a sense of the of the flavors and the spices in there, and uh, yeah, just seeing if you enjoy it. Um, but we, we, we actually also created this for the Pinot Noir lovers as, as a gin that you could equally pair with, with Pinot Noir, classic Pinot Noir dishes like Dark à l'Orange and, you know, a, a beautiful hearty lamb dish. So it's, it's a gin that's been made to, to pair just as well with food as a Pinot Noir. Yeah, interesting. So that's what we wanted to get to because we got sidetracked. Yeah, so uh, gin, and, gin and food pairings, talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's... I think it's a fascinating topic and, and you can you can do so much with, with pairing gins with food. The the maritime gin that I spoke about before because it's got flavours from the ocean is a beautiful one for seafoods and oysters and the, the orient gin that I mentioned with the mandarin, it's got, you know, Sichuan pepper and some spices, so that goes beautifully with, with Asian dishes. So again, I think when it comes to to trying to pair up a gin with food, you look at the botanicals, you think about um, where some of those botanicals might might pop up in a in a beautiful dish and then and then go for it. See how it goes. Fascinating. This is stuff that I'm learning about myself. It's so interesting. So um, and then as far as serving it, as we mentioned before, you know you can just have it um, uh, straight, um, but you can you can add a bit of tonic, maybe just on some ice. So however yep. you like it. There's no hard and fast rules. I think when you're eating eating. I think uh, as far as gin and tonics go, you know, usually you'd maybe do a one to four proportion, but if you're having a bit more of a um, a floral or a lighter style gin like the Angry Ant, or you want to just highlight the gin more, you can do a one to three, but yeah. It's when really she says to one to three, she means one part gin. One part gin. Not three parts gin. Not three parts gin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, Hol, uh, is this, um, so yeah, so, so, so two things, okay. You briefly touched on before that one of your genes has ant pheromones in it. Yes. What does that even mean? <laughs> so the angry ant gin, um, we we actually created this gin to really celebrate the story of Woolene Station and, and the owners, um, Francis and David Pollock. And basically, in a nutshell, the, the story of theirs is that they they worked really really hard to regenerate this this beautiful property some 380,000 acres of property in in the remote Murchison ranges of Western Australia and um, at the time when they took over running the property there was 
a lot of, um, you know, the, the native flora and fauna was disappearing because of all the cattle and everything. And so uh, they, they have a, a really inspiring story about bringing that property back to its natural habitat. And so we got in touch with them and we, we went over there and we had a look at what they had on their property because we wanted to source some native botanicals from their property and put it into a bottle. And uh, while we were there, we, we went on a tour with a local Indigenous elder and he was talking to us about the local botanicals there, like the mullamulla, the currant bush, the native lemongrass, purple vetch, and also these native gravel ants. And these ants have what's called an alarm pheromone. And that alarm pheromone is, is very much flavoured or, I guess, infused with the... Um, the flowers that they graze on and that impacts the 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 pheromones that they release when they're agitated and we just thought it was a really fascinating concept to not only source local botanicals from this property woolene station but also to then tie all those botanicals together really nicely with ant pheromones that also graze on those same botanicals yeah, fascinating. What can I ask? And I don't even know if this is a question that's prying too much. But what is a pheromone? An ant pheromone? Like tangibly, what is that? Ah, uh, that well, they they release they release this aroma, and yeah, it's a right. way of communicating to each other, and it's a way of um, showing distress and also communicating because they 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 work together. And um, whenever you know, we, we call the gin angry ant because when they're angry, they release this this fragrance this aroma um and yeah we we captured that that pheromone that aroma and it's it's a very kind of musky a little bit citrusy kind of um, botanical i suppose fascinating absolutely fascinating loved it loved it loved it this has been such an interesting afternoon uh thank you so much for allowing us into the world of distillation as we sipped over a few gins. You're very welcome. Um, so anyway, uh, this was Holly from Bass and Flinders and uh, we're looking forward to bringing something a little different to you next week. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Holly, and we'll see you next week, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.